you should be using the wealth building and wealth protection strategies of family offices, even if your net worth is zero, really. Uh, I started this business with $600 in my bank account, and I owed $1,000 a month for rent in Harvard Square in Boston. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Richard, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me here, Matt. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I like uh, Netflix and Chillin' uh, <laughs> Ben & Jerry's. It's classic. Is that a real flavor from Ben & Jerry's? Yeah, it really is. And uh, it's amazing and amazingly unhealthy. So I try to only have it like once every three months or something. <laughs> I thought you were going to go once every other day. Did, no, they, no. did they have to license that from Netflix? Like, How does a deal like that work? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think that uh, I've seen one with um, the Tonight Show host and one with yeah. uh, a couple other actors and stuff. So maybe maybe they uh, pay them a bunch and they push it out on their their Instagram channel or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, Jenny's is now in the game because uh, Ted Lasso is in their third season now, and I saw Jenny's was uh, has a flavor of Ted Lasso too. Biscuits with the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Well, it's funny being asked about favorite ice cream flavors from an Iron Man trainer. I think that's like kind of comical in itself. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate you having me on here though. I, I'm an inner fat kid trapped in a skinny man's body. What can I say? <laughs> well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So I run the family office club. I've been doing that for 16 years. Um, we've hosted 190 live events and written 13 books and um, bought billionaires.com last year and we're interviewing a hundred billionaires with 25 done so far, like Tony Robbins, Mark Cuban and Grant Cardone. And then the last thing is that like by running our investor club for 16 years, we've seen the wealthiest families became wealthy and then drove their wealth forward and protected it by focusing on just one or two areas. So I'm sure we'll get into it later, but we're just focused on, on two different areas of, uh, investment for our uh, balance sheet, um, but our investor club, you know, has all types of investors, all types of um, asset managers and company CEOs in it. Awesome. Well, let's start with what a family office is, because 16 years ago, I had no idea what a family office was. I actually found out what a family office was because of you. So, where, how did you even stumble upon a family office? What is it? And we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So, a family office is a ultra wealthy solution uh, for the for the ultra wealthy. So, it's basically a full balance sheet solution, where where the planning's done more holistically, uh, more multi generational, with tax considerations uh, taken into place and trust structures. So, if you're worth half a million dollars, the level of problems and complexity you have is totally different than five million, fifty million, five hundred million, and the wealthier you get the more that one filing mistake or filing something one month late might cost you $1,000, $10,000, $100,000. So pretty soon it's better that you just pay a really good team to oversee all the moving pieces to avoid the increased expense of those mistakes, but also the frequency of those mistakes. I have 20-some LLCs and one of my clients has 160 LLCs and you're just more likely to mess something up as you grow wealthier. Um, and when I found out they existed is when I was raising capital, and the investment manager required accredited investors. And I'd call them wealth advisors and they would say, oh, well, not many of my investors are accredited, so this isn't a good match. And I called one and he said, oh yeah, well, we're a family office, so we focus only on serving the ultra wealthy. And I said to myself, well, I should only call in family offices then, I'm wasting my time with these other guys. And as I tried to do so, I found it was very hard to identify them um, back then, 16 years ago, and also 
the only people helping me and being a trail guide were people from like the financial times that wrote an article in the industry and they'd never worked in the industry a day in their life. So I started a blog, I started writing about it once a week. And then once every couple of days, started getting 500 hits a day to the website. So I started writing twice a day, started getting three, 5,000 hits a day, got on the front page of the Boston Globe and spoke a couple hundred times in 15 countries because of just writing on the blog, basically. Gotcha. When you say ultra high net worth individuals for family office, like what's the threshold where it starts to make sense to have somebody else, a team of people managing your capital and your net worth? I mean, there's a, there's a virtual family office level where at seven, 10, 15 million net worth, you want some parts of a family office working for you because their life is more complex and you probably sold a business or you're making seven figures and you're starting to do company investments, maybe some, some fund investments or with sponsors, et cetera. Um, above that level, um, and starting at that level, you might want to hire a multifamily office that manages wealth for dozens or hundred plus families. But if you become very wealthy and you're at 50 or hundred million or several hundreds of millions of dollars, you might want your own formalized single family office. So if you think of a virtual family office, keeping everything super lean, but having the benefits of a family office, a single family office is many full-time people overlooking what you're doing. And, um, you know, the words, people confuse the words and, you know, use them in different ways. But the main point is that you should be using the wealth building and wealth protection strategies of family offices, even if your net worth is zero, really. Uh, I started this business with $600 in my bank account and I owed $1,000 a month for rent in Harvard Square in Boston. And um, everything I've built was from studying family offices and building my family office club um, organization within the space just by studying them. And so um, the strategies through which people create their wealth you know, leave clues as to how you should be playing the game of business. And that's kind of part of the point of running our family office club business is just to be a perpetual learning machine for us and our members. That's what I was going to say. It's almost a dual benefit, right? You're learning how the wealthy protect their money and, and allocate their capital, et cetera. But you're also getting access to that capital for real estate projects or other deals that you might be doing. I would imagine, though, that that is a pretty closed off society and they're not just opening up their arms to a, uh, uh, a guy living in an apartment in Harvard Square back 16 years ago. How were you able to kind of break down the gatekeepers and and get involved in this space? I mean, it was tough because I was uh, 24 years old. I was a kid. People still think I'm a kid uh, in this industry, right? So I kind of had to try harder because of that, right? I had to, when I got my first book deal with Wiley, even though I already had a very popular website and a huge LinkedIn group of family office contacts, I blasted the LinkedIn group and said, who wants to be interviewed for my book with Wiley? And I had a hundred people apply. I interviewed 30 of them and I put out a book interviewing 30 family offices with their full names in the book. So people knew for sure, without a doubt that I had a network of family offices. And then after speaking at over a hundred of other people's events, I started hosting my own cocktail hours, my own half day events and putting five to six family offices on stage who had talked to me and knew that I was uh, genuine and adding value and just documenting how the industry worked and being, you know, honest and helpful about it. And then that morphed into having 20, 30. And now at all of our events, we have 70 to 130 speakers on stage at each event. And so there'll always be those who are skeptical or who may not want to be part of family office club as a family office. But from a young age, it was just adding value first and then just de-risking the equation. Cause if somebody reads an article on the blog, or an email blast, or like our YouTube series called How to Start a Family Office. It's like a mini series we have on there for free. And they consume all that information. They're going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars of value. And they're going to say, 
oh, okay, I'll, I'll go to the, I'll go to Richard's event or let me pick up the phone and work with him. And so it's all about adding value first, exactly like you're doing right now on this podcast. So I know I don't have to explain to you how that works, but for other people listening, I mean, that that's how we've built our whole business is doing exactly what you're doing in this interview. Yeah, I, I want to take the skeptic approach and say that somebody worth a billion dollars or such that has a full family office, it might be tough to add value to those people considering they have a whole team running their uh, their personal wealth. What were some of the things you did early on to add value to them? Yeah, I think, you know, it is a mental challenge to figure out how to do it, but it's definitely possible. Um, early on, they would sometimes reach out to me and say, hey, what are other people paying their CIOs at their family office? And I'd say, oh, well, I've heard this and this, but they structure it with 10% carry on the deals they work on and they have this much base, et cetera. Um, or I'll say, well, why don't I just connect you with the best executive search person I know and you can pick their brain for a minute and, and just try to be helpful to them in just little ways like that. Um, early on, it was also me speaking at the same event as them and hearing them speak and them saying, oh, we have a platform of car service centers or we have a platform of manufacturing companies. And then me just keeping in mind what other manufacturing families do I know or what other assets can I get access to and then bring that to them, which is an exact fit for what they said on stage they're looking to acquire um, versus bringing them random ideas. So those things were really important early on. Um, nowadays, a lot of the time we can source something very specific for um, a billionaire. We've done 19 transactions with one billionaire, for example, um, just looking for and helping negotiate JV agreements with real estate platforms and medical practice operators, um, et cetera. But, but you have to have that mindset really to do really well in the space and be um, politely persistent. But like Gary Vaynerchuk always says, like at the micro level, he's moving very quick and getting a lot of things knocked out per hour. But on the macro level, you have to be very patient with the results and you're really planting seeds and some of them might sprout quickly. But if you're in the mode of like, hey, if I don't get something out of this right away, then this is a waste of time, then you're really not in the right space and you're not going to do well in the family office industry. Yeah, or really in the industry, right? I like the idea of just listening to what people were talking about and what they say they need either directly or indirectly. And then hopefully you have somebody in your contact base that you know is a rock star in that and you can just make a connection and allow people to go from there. Yeah, I also try to develop, you know, Charles Munger has a poor Charlie's almanac book. He's like Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He talks about collecting 100 mental models throughout your life within your niche and stacking those on top of each other. So I like to collect mental models on how to add value first to family offices. I could help connect two sons of $200 million net worth families to each other. Um, I know one of my families that's worth $300 million loves golf. And I was on a private jet real estate tour last month with someone who owns a golf course. And this other family had always wanted to own a golf course. And I said, oh, but are you by chance selling the golf course? And he said, oh, we'd be open to selling part or all of it, um, you know, quietly. And so we signed an NDA and they toured that last week. That added value. And then also a templates related to structure. And it's going to be different for me than whoever else is listening here. But with one family, I saw they had 14 service centers in their business and an amazing business model, which was subscription-based. And I said, well, if you're like most people in my investor club, you're giving away equity every time you open a center to your equity investors. Um, what if I could design an investment structure for you where the investor gets a good return and you give away 0% equity instead of 20 or 30% each time you open a center? And I emailed both of the two founders who happened to be brothers cold on LinkedIn, and they both replied the same day. And it was a $150 million net worth family and ended up meeting their board and meeting their executive team. And 
So you learn these different things that they're most likely interested in based on what you see on their website and what they said on stage. And then you can use those mental models over and over again to add value to them. You, you mentioned structures, and that's one of the things I kind of wanted to tease out of you since I've got um, some of your undivided attention and I get to ask questions to yeah. you is you, you get a chance to see a lot of different structures out there. And as I, it, I toured a property last week with a family office member and um, they had a totally different structure to their deal that I had ever seen before in other syndicated offers. What are some of the common structures you see that both maximize your high net worth capital that's coming in, but also help uh, the syndicator attract capital like that? Sure. So the way to grow the fastest is to do joint venture co-GP deal structures that get you all the capital you need from one source but have a much more uh, low fee performance based and um, great result for the investor. It's typically the shortest path to going big quickly if you have the credibility to win over that investor. So that's something just uh, for people to, to keep in mind. Um, but my favorite structure is using a gross revenue royalty structures. Um, we do a, a five and a half hour long workshop just on investment structures and um, I really have found that the structure matters as much, if not more so than the strategy, because you can take a deal that has a, um, a pretty good deal, but if you put a bad structure on it, it makes it horrible. And you can take a bad deal. And if you put an amazing structure around it, then you can get all the profits first, have all the collateral, get all the dividends. So um, with gross revenue royalties, uh, we'll oftentimes structure deals where the investor gets paid out monthly off the top line revenue, whether the company's making a profit or not, they're getting their wire transfer every single month. But it's also good for the CEO because if the revenue goes down, the royalty payment goes down. It's not like a bank loan where you owe 17000 a month forever, no matter how bad you're doing until the loan's paid off. But then separately, we'll structure things that prevent the CEO from getting diluted. And maybe the investor gets a royalty until they get a 2x return or an X, uh, some sort of level Y return. And sometimes we're in deals where we have a equity warrant or right of participation for when they sell the company. And so we get all of our money back, like a 1.5x return, but then we're in it until they sell and then we get another return or our equity goes down after all our money's off the table. So there is, we've done 14 of those deals and we're always structuring and doing a couple more. And um, in our medical clinic capital division, we invest into multi-location medical practices, um, probably nine out of 10 deals that we do there will be royalty-based. Um, and so that's really, important to us. I think most family offices have never done a royalty deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think I've heard you say, and I hate to misquote you if you said it wrong, but like, give me any deal. And if you allow me to put together the structure, I'll probably take it. Right. Right. Yeah. Basically that's the, that's the crux of it. It's interesting though, because like different investors want different structures. So I'll tell you, you can put a lot of hard work into a structure. think it is amazing. And then you'll go to some investors and like, um, like for investorresidences.com, the short-term rental property platform is the, the only other niche that's really on our balance sheet besides the medical practice space. Uh, we designed a structure where the investors get no acquisition fees charged to them, no annual asset management fees. All the profits and dividends go to them until they double their money. And then they're out of the deal, except for a vacation credit. And we have some investors that say, oh, I wish you just had a traditional structure. And um, in our mind, it's funny because we're like, okay, well, we can charge you a bunch of fees up front and charge you fees every year. I mean, if that's what you want, I mean, we can do a side letter and just charge you a bunch of fees right now if you want. Uh, so no matter what you structure, some investor will uh, want something slightly different. So uh, one strategy is to develop 
always be tweaking your structure and develop uh, A, B, C share classes over time if you really want to maximize your conversion rate with investors. Um, and just to keep that agile mindset in place. Because if you go to the average attorney, they'll say, how should we st set up our fund? And they're going to say, what do you think they're going to say? Like, hey, let's spend three hours on a phone call designing the most unique, creative, effective structure possible for you. Or are they going to say, oh, everybody does it this way. This is the best practice. Take our template. Let's rubber stamp this thing and, you know, charge you your $40,000 and be on our way. Right. So yeah. uh, they're going to want to do the template approach all day long. So that's, that's important to know. Yeah. It's almost like a manufacturing facility where they're just going through and doing their little stamp and getting paid a hefty fee for it. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully if your attorney is amazing, they're at least customizing a few of the things along the way, but, um, are they really going to come out with something that's really revolutionary to give you, you want to, you don't want to do what everyone else is doing. You want to make it better and have your structure sweat for you and have your brand sweat for you. Like if you brand your investment company, Wilson Capital, no one knows what the hell you do, you know? Uh, and so if you brand it, Austin self-storage partners, then maybe it doesn't sound super sexy, but at least people know what you do and where you do it. Uh, ideally, they kind of know what you do and they already want to work with you just by hearing the brand. And the same should be true with your structure. If it's thought through well and positioned well, they hear the structure and now that is one of the three compelling reasons of why they invest with you because you're more aligned or they just really find the structure refreshing or simple and easy to understand, et cetera. You're leading me down um, some good paths here with branding. So you are out there really from afar. I've noticed that you're just gobbling up internet domains, right? Uh, I consider uh, domains the real estate of the virtual space. And one of the yeah. projects that you hinted at earlier was this idea of billionaires.com, which is a moonshot project from my view to really kind of uh, get involved with billionaires and add value back to normal folks like myself on some of the wisdoms we can take from them. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that project and, and how you got involved? Sure. Yeah. And I'm just a normal guy like yourself too. I mean, I think we're actually very much alike. Uh, so I'd love to get to know you more, more over time, but we, um, I learned early on, it was silly. I was in Monaco at a hedge fund conference and I brought my wife and it was probably one of the first 20 events I'd spoken at. And as I went around the room, people were saying to me and also when my wife went to go get a cup of coffee, like, Oh, you're the, you're the wife of the, he the hedge fund blogger guy. Uh, and they would, they would call me the hedge fund blogger guy. Cause I had a hedge fund blog and I talked about capital raising hedge funds and family offices. Well, I realized over time that people cared more about the family offices than capital raising and more about capital raising than hedge funds because it wasn't so niche and not many people were talking about family offices. So I realized at that point I could position myself in any niche I wanted to, as long as I took the time to write 500 blog posts on it and put out more information than anyone else had on the niche, then I'd be known as that guy. And I realized that hedge fund blogger guy is a really dumb positioning to have. So I was like, all right, so may, how do I position myself as the family office guy? Um, and so at that point, the light went on. I said, okay, I'm just going to dedicate myself no matter how long it takes to being a top five player globally in the family office niche or industry and put out more thought leadership than everyone else in that space. So that's what we did. But then two years after I started the business in 2009, I thought, oh, well, now that we own familyoffices.com, what if we bought billionaires.com? And the guy replied saying that he wanted you know, over seven figures for it. So every three to five months, um, over 12 years, I followed up with him until during COVID he cracked. And after 150 email exchanges, um, they finally cracked and gave it to me for less than half of what they had been holding out on at over 12 years. And I guess they just figured, okay, you know, let's just sell this damn thing. Cause this guy must know. really want it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so I just wait, you know, I was just waiting for the right opportunity there. And um, it worked once in the family office industry. And now, not that billionaires is outside of the industry, but I feel like it's going to be elevating our whole brand to be a halo effect because I'm, I've read about 40 billionaire books and I've got some great ones I could recommend for your listeners. And at my last conference with 450 people, nobody had read more than five books by a billionaire. And there's over 220 of them out there. We're just all reading books by people good at marketing their books, but they're not as good at doing business as these people. Um, and so we're learning by reading the books, interviewing the billionaires, it gives us a little bit of a halo effect, but also just like learning their strategies. And then hopefully out of, you know, hundred billionaires that we interview, like we've done Tony Robbins and Mark Cuban and Grant Cardone, et cetera, that, uh, hopefully one or two of them become our clients and we just become smarter. And then our investor club members, you know, we get to like transfer down all those best practices to them. I love the fact that it took you 150 emails. I love the fact that you knew that. One of the other things I've observed from you from afar is that you're very disciplined and structured and patiently persistent to kind of steal some words from you earlier today, uh, earlier in the interview. How, yeah. What does your structure look like on that? How did you always remember to follow up with them? Because sometimes we get lost in a long pursuit like that. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is a really silly, simple answer is that in Gmail, when you send an email, you can go to the sent box, push on the clock button and just snooze the email to pop back up if they don't reply. So whenever they would say to me like, no, or go away or whatever, then I would snooze it to come back up two to four months later. And I just did that like over and over and over again. And right now I can, I can check in real time here to tell you the honest number. But right now I have 881 snoozed emails that will pop, will pop up at different points in time over the next year and a half for follow-ups. So this could be with a family that just sold a company. It could be with a potential client, a past client, a sponsor, a group in Singapore that wants to partner, but I don't want to do that till I start hosting our events in Singapore again. So it helps me stay all organized. And then, um, the best tool has been this one pager. Uh, so I read this every morning. And I've got um, Michael Jordan, David Goggins down up there. And I've got at the bottom here, some of my mentors like Evan Pagan and Dan Sullivan, et cetera, kind of like an advisory board thing. And every day I start out my day reading this, my monthly goals, and then my quarterly goals, my annual goals. And this is like my mental operating system. And so I would keep like billionaires.com on this list to be a quarterly goal or an annual goal, but then also be operating based on this. And every day I start with this lens of what I'm trying to get done. And it helps me stay focused, not just on that, but the broader answer to your question is like to, um, be focused on the goals. Cause all it is, is, um, a lot of hard work. I am just a normal guy, uh, exactly like you. And it's just really laser focused, hard work. And when I teach at our workshops, the family office club is that if you choose a sandbox, like billionaires.com or self-storage in Austin or whatever the niche is that you want to dominate. It has to be so exciting that you'll spend the next decade being the number one or a top two in that niche. And no matter how long it takes, you'll do whatever it takes to be, to dominate that sandbox. And if you're not that excited by it, then you're not going to be motivated to put out videos or articles or podcasts or materials. Um, but ironically, if you really look at it as a really long-term thing and you'll do whatever it takes to do it, you know, who else is going to spend the time to write 13 books on family offices? Like that makes someone think, oh, okay, well then let's just do business with them and they, you earn their trust faster because no one in their right mind would do that if they're going to be out of the industry in a year or two. And so ironically doing the things that you would only do in your right mind by being long-term dedicated 
is what makes people move fast and do business with you very quickly sometimes. So it's kind of a weird, um, you know, contrasting idea to, to think about, you know? Yeah. And I love what you said was like, it's not revolutionary. It's very boring. Do, do, do put everything you want to do on a piece of paper and just look at it every single day. Yeah. And we were talking about Ironmans before this and people always yeah. ask like, how could you ever do that? It's like, well, you just do something every day for a long period of time. And all of a sudden you're very fit and the race is not the hard part. It was getting started and doing the discipline every day. That was the hard part. Right. 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 Yeah, for sure. I couldn't, uh, couldn't agree more. And, um, if it was up to me, I would be doing an adventure travel trip or some sort of like race thing like that, like every four to six weeks, like we're doing, um, Nepal on a Sherpa led trek to Everest base camp. Yes. Weeks, uh, with my wife and brother and one of my, my doctor investors. Uh, and I'm doing the West coast trail on Vancouver Island in May. And that's going to be like an eight day backpacking trip. And, um, I just, I'd live for going on those fun outdoor adventures and doing physical, healthy, healthy things that just kind of get me outside and off the, off the computer, you know? Yeah. H have you done the full PCT yet? Uh, no, we do a segment of it each summer with a couple of my guy buddies from, from grade school and high school. Last year we did middle sister one day and then we summited we summited middle sister and then we summited south sister the next day at daybreak and uh that was amazing uh but we just do these little 50 mile chunks each summer for a few days each have you done some of that um no but i it's a goal the, yeah all of the at so i'm originally from the east coast so doing the whole appalachian trail would probably be something but i think the pct once you get like north of sacramento looks unbelievably gorgeous oh yeah it's amazing i would i would encourage you to check out some, some chunks of it in the South sister, middle sister, uh, are really fun to summit and are too technical. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, fantastic conversation. I want to be cognizant of your time now and switch us to our last round. We're calling sure. this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently? That's giving you a paradigm shift. Yeah. Uh, the book is what it takes by Steve Schwarzman He's the founder of Blackstone. I've listened to it twice on audible. It's an amazing book. I think I'll listen to it a few more times. And then I'm reading to my daughter, a book that I read every year myself called the Su success principles by Jack Canfield. So she's 10 years old. So every morning at breakfast, we just read one chapter. It starts getting too long and slow motion. I skim over a few paragraphs to make sure she gets the main point of the chapter, but, uh, going through those 53 principles with her lately, she's really enjoyed it actually. And that's been, that's been really great for, for her. I'm starring that cause our family is starting to think about like family mottos and different things like that. Yeah. And, uh, it sounds like we could pull a few from there. Yeah, for sure. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Yeah. Um, I would say that some of the habits I have every day is walking, uh, or just moving my body around in some, some form, getting some exercise. Um, so I try to go three to five miles of walking a day, um, or walking plus workout class or, or weightlifting of some type. Um, so that's really important. Uh, I like doing hot yoga once a week. You know, I start my day with that laminated, um, one pager, and then just making sure that I'm present with my kids and having the habit of spending time with them. I never do client dinners, um, and making sure I'm taking the time to drop them off at school in the morning, et cetera. As simple as that sounds like when you're really busy with a lot of employees, it's very easy to just, you know, ignore your kids more than you may wish you had when you, you know, look back at the end of the year, you know, completely agree. And I would actually like to give a plug that hot yoga is way harder than it sounds. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I think living in Florida for five years was kind of good training for it. If you go running, yeah. if you do like a half marathon at lunchtime in the summer in <laughs> Miami, Florida, it feels like hot yoga, you know? But Sometimes, 6 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice. I think it was when I was deciding whether to start my business or not. Everybody told me to take the job at another capital raising company because it was a really solid company that had raised billions of dollars. And I would learn a ton, but I had this other path of starting the business based on the blog I had. And only one person told me to start the business, but I think my brain was just searching for confirmation of what I knew I wanted to do. Um, because as soon as he said it, I remember where I was walking through the computer lab in Harvard Square and uh, I sat down thinking like, huh, maybe he's right. Maybe I will start the business. And because I did that, it changed my whole life. And so he basically said like, hey, what have you got to lose? You can go back and take the job in six months or a year. Like just, you know, he's like, you don't have a house and, and five kids like I do right now. So just go start it. You know, what, what's the worst case scenario? And some of the best things have ever happened to us is when we said, okay, what the hell, let's do this. Or like, oh yeah, it'd be awesome. Let's just go for it and take the risk, like trying to buy billionaires.com or buying commercialrealestate.com or starting the business and all that type of stuff, you know? So um, that that probably, that that advice changed my life. Yeah, it's almost like your worst situation is what your plan B was anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our fourth one is, what are, what are you most proud of in your life? Um, I think I'm most proud of when people say that either, wow, you seem like a really good dad just randomly as we go around places or that when people say like, oh, you you seem to be like a real class act without asking them what their opinion is of us. Because I feel like, um, it's only so hard to be successful at business, but a lot of people who are successful at business are 40 pounds overweight divorced three times or alcoholics or addicted to drugs or, um, you know, a bunch of other things, right? It's much, much harder to perform at a high level over a high period of time and be a good human being and be a good father and be a good husband and be ultra healthy. And to me, that is like the business Olympian, like Michael Jordan, you know, he lives that life every day. Um, so that, that's why it's most important, I think. And, um, that's, that's the most important thing to me. Yeah. I just want to double click on that real quick because sometimes it's easy to look at somebody above you in socioeconomic stature and just be jealous or envious of them, but you don't even realize that their kids hate them, their wife d- divorced them and all these sorts of bad things going on in their life. So I oh, agree. Yeah. It's, it's better to be well-rounded there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think part of the trick is like, how do you do that in a way where you don't feel like, oh, I can either be successful or I do this and you know, it's not like, oh, you're choosing to be ultra healthy instead of ultra wealthy. It's like, if you're ultra healthy, you should have more focus and energy, be able to wake up earlier in the morning with a clean mind and not be hung over or slowed down by, you know, effects of alcohol, et cetera. And, um, it should fuel your ability to be ultra wealthy, not hurt your ability. They shouldn't be competing against each other. So al- aligning everything in your life. So there's less friction I found is a big part of that. hundred percent. 100%. Where our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? It could be Michael Jordan, uh, just to talk to him about the sacrifices he made to get to where he was, because that's directly related to what we were just talking about, right? Deciding to work instead of spend time with your kids, how to balance all that and 
you know, he has become a billionaire from being a basketball player. And um, yeah, I'd love to just just dig into his his brain related to how he conducts business and, and operates now. And um, he's my number one dream interview for billionaires.com. If anyone has access, we've tried four or five times, but you know, Mark Cuban took me 14 times, then he broke down and answered me. So we'll, we'll get him eventually, even if it takes me a decade, but if anyone wants to speed that up for us, I uh, would be greatly in your debt. With, with all of your history, I have no doubt you will get a chance to talk to him. Did he, um, did he end up selling the Bobcats? I read the other day that he was interested in a sale. I saw a headline, but the way those things go, they take forever and need so many levels of approval that even yep. if there's some sort of agreement proved, there's probably a bunch of owners that have to vote on it and probably a huge mess of a process unless they kept it super quiet until all that was done for nine months. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't heard a final update. I saw a Facebook post going around on that though. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Richard, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your, uh, sharing your insights and coming on the show. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about Family Office Club, billionaires.com, or connect you to Michael Jordan himself, where's the best place we could put them? Point them. Yeah, great. So uh, you can check out any events we have coming up at familyoffices.com. Um, you can also check out our charter membership there. If you're a syndicator or running a company and you want to raise capital, come to our 15 live events a year and our workshops and investor summits. Uh, the investor summits typically have 70 to 130 speakers and investors on stage at them. Um, but we built our whole business like you giving things away. So we have a free book on familyoffices.com. We have a free book on capitalraising.com for those of you who are raising capital. Um, and then we've helped put together about 200 family offices for clients. So if you're an investor and you want to learn more about formalizing your family office, you want to check out our investor club events or uh, learn more about our medical practice work or short-term rental property platform, just reach out to us at investorclub.com and you'll see our phone number and email and everything right there at investorclub.com. Perfect. We'll link up all those in the show notes. And then Richard, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.